Chapter Ten, Part B of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Ten, Part B. The Baron returned to Les Peuples about the middle of November. He seemed a different man. He had aged so much and was so low-spirited. He was fonder than ever of his daughter, as if the last few months of melancholy solitude had caused in him an imperative need of affection and tenderness. Jeanne told him nothing about her new ideas, her intimacy with the Abbe Tolbiac, or her religious enthusiasm, but the first time he saw the priest he felt an invincible dislike for him, and when his daughter asked him in the evening, "'Well, what do you think of him?' "'He is like an inquisitor,' he answered. "'He seems to me a very dangerous man.' When the peasants told him about the young priest's harshness and bigotry, and the sort of war of persecution he waged against natural laws and instincts, his dislike changed to a violent hatred. He, the baron, belonged to the school of philosophers who worship nature— to him it seemed something touching when he saw two animals unite, and he was always ready to fall on his knees before the sort of pantheistic god he worshipped. But he hated the Catholic conception of a god who has petty schemes and gives way to tyrannical anger and indulges in mean revenge, a god, in fact, who seemed less to him than that boundless omnipotent nature which is at once life, light, earth, thought, plant, rock, man, air, animal, planet, god and insect, that nature which produces all things in such bountiful profusion, fitting each atom to the place it is to occupy in space, be that position close to or far from the suns which heat the worlds. Nature contained the germ of everything, and she brought forth life and thought, as trees bear flowers and fruit. To the baron, therefore, reproduction was a great law of nature, and to be respected as the sacred and divine act which accomplished the constant, though unexpressed will, of this universal being. And he at once began a campaign against this priest, who opposed the laws of creation. It grieved Jeanne to the heart, and she prayed to the Lord and implored her father not to run counter to the curé, but the baron always answered, it is everyone's right and duty to fight against such men, for they are not like human creatures. They are not human, he repeated, shaking his long white hair. They understand nothing of life, and their conduct is entirely influenced by their harmful dreams, which are contrary to nature, and he pronounced contrary to nature, as if he were uttering a curse. The priest had at once recognized in him an enemy, and as he wished to remain master of the chateau and its young mistress, he temporized, feeling sure of victory in the end. By chance he had discovered the liaison between Julien and Gilberte, and his one idea was to break it off by no matter what means. He came to see Jeanne one day towards the end of the wet, mild winter, and after a long talk on the mystery of life, he asked her to unite with him in fighting against and destroying the wickedness which was in her own family, and so save two souls which were in danger. She asked him what he meant. The hour has not come for me to reveal all to you, he replied, but I will see you again soon, and with that he abruptly left her. 
He came again in a few days and spoke in vague terms of a disgraceful connection between people whose conduct ought to be irreproachable. It was the duty, he said, of those who were aware of what was going on to use every means to put an end to it. He used all sorts of lofty arguments, and then, taking Jeanne's hand, adjured her to open her eyes, to understand and to help him. This time Jeanne saw what he meant but terrified at the thought of all the trouble that might be brought to her home, which was now so peaceful, she pretended not to know to what he was alluding. Then he hesitated no longer, but spoke in terms there could be no misunderstanding. "'I am going to perform a very painful duty, Madame la Comtesse, but I cannot leave it undone. The position I hold forbids me to leave you in ignorance of the sin you can prevent.' Learn that your husband cherishes a criminal affection for Madame de Fourville. Jeanne only bent her head in feeble resignation. What do you intend to do? asked the priest. What do you wish me to do, Monsieur l'abbé? she murmured. Throw yourself in the way as an obstacle to this guilty love, he answered violently. She began to cry and said in a broken voice, but he has deceived me before with a servant. He wouldn't listen to me. He doesn't love me now. He ill-treats me if I manifest any desire that does not please him. So what can I do? The curé did not make any direct answer to this appeal. Then you bow before this sin. You submit to it, he exclaimed. You consent to and tolerate adultery under your own roof. The crime is being perpetrated before your eyes, and you refuse to see it. Are you a Christian woman? Are you a wife and a mother? What would you have me do? she sobbed. Anything rather than allow this sin to continue, he replied. Anything, I tell you. Leave him. Flee from this house which has been defiled. But I have no money, Monsieur l'abbé, she replied, and I am not brave now like I used to be. Besides, how can I leave without any proofs of what you are saying? I have not the right to do so. The priest rose to his feet, quivering with indignation. "'You are listening to the dictates of your cowardice, madame. I thought you were a different woman, but you are unworthy of God's mercy.' She fell on her knees. "'Oh, do not abandon me, I implore you. Advise me what to do.' "'Open Monsieur de Fourville's eyes,' he said shortly. "'It is his duty to end this liaison.' She was seized with terror at this advice. But he would kill them, Monsieur l'abbé. And should I be the one to tell him? Oh, not that. Never, never. He raised his hand as if to curse her, his whole soul stirred with anger. Live on in your shame and in your wickedness, for you are more guilty than they are. You are the wife who condones her husband's sin. My place is no longer here. He turned to go, trembling all over with wrath. She followed him distractedly, ready to give in and beginning to compromise. But he would not listen to her and strode rapidly along, furiously shaking his big blue umbrella, which was nearly as high as himself. He saw Julien standing near the gate superintending the pruning of some trees. So he turned off to the left to reach the road by way of the Cuillard's farm. And as he walked, he kept saying to Jeanne, Leave me, madame. I have nothing further to say to you. In the middle of the yard, and right in his path, some children were standing around the kennel of the dog Mirza, 
their attention concentrated on something which the baron was also carefully considering as he stood in their midst with his hands behind his back looking like a schoolmaster do come and see me again monsieur l'abbé pleaded jeanne if you will return in a few days i shall be able to tell you then what i think is the best course to take and we can talk it over by that time they had almost reached the group of children which the baron had left to avoid meeting and speaking to his enemy the priest and the curé went to see what it was that was interesting them so deeply it was the dog whelping five little pups were already crawling round the mother who gently licked them as she lay on her side before the kennel and just as the curé looked over the children's heads a sixth appeared when they saw it all the boys and girls clapped their hands crying there's another there's another to them it was simply a perfectly pure and natural amusement and they watched these pups being born as they might have watched the apples falling from a tree the abbe tolbiac stood still for a moment in horrified surprise then giving way to his passion he raised his umbrella and began to rain down blows on the children's heads the startled urchins ran off as fast as they could go and the abbe found himself left alone with the dog which was painfully trying to rise before she could stand up he knocked her back again and began to hit her with all his strength the animal moaned pitifully as she writhed under these blows from which there was no escape for she was chained up and at last the priest's umbrella broke then unable to beat the dog any more he jumped on her and stamped and crushed her underfoot in a perfect frenzy of anger another pup was born beneath his feet before he dispatched the mother with a last furious kick and then the mangled body lay quivering in the midst of the whining pups which were awkwardly groping for their mother's teats jeanne had escaped but the baron returned and almost as enraged as the priest suddenly seized the abbe by the throat and giving him a blow which knocked his hat off carried him to the fence and threw him out into the road when he turned round monsieur le pertuis saw his daughter kneeling in the midst of the pups sobbing as she picked them up and put them in her skirt he strode up to her gesticulating wildly there he exclaimed what do you think of that surpliced wretch now the noise had brought the farm people to the spot and they all stood round gazing at the remains of the dog could one have believed that a man could be so cruel as that said Cuillard's wife jeanne picked up the pups saying she would bring them up by hand she tried to give them some milk but three out of seven died the next day then old simon went all over the neighborhood trying to find a foster mother for the others he could not get a dog but he brought back a cat asserting that she would do as well three more pups were killed and the seventh was given to the cat who took to it directly and lay down on her side to suckle it that it might not exhaust its foster mother the pup was weaned a fortnight later and jeanne undertook to feed it herself with a feeding bottle she had named it toto but the baron rechristened it and called it massacre the priest did not go to see jeanne again the next sunday he hurled curses and threats against the chateau denouncing it as a plague spot which ought to be removed and going on to anathematize the baron who laughed at him and to make veiled half-timid allusions to julien's latest amour the vicomte was very vexed at this 
but he did not dare say anything for fear of giving rise to a scandal, and the priest continued to call down vengeance on their heads and to foretell the downfall of God's enemies in every sermon. At last Julian wrote a decided, though respectful, letter to the archbishop, and the abbe Tolbiac, finding himself threatened with disgrace, ceased his denunciations. He began to take long, solitary walks. Often he was to be met striding along the roads with an ardent, excited look on his face. Gilbert and Julien were always seeing him when they were out riding, sometimes in the distance on the other side of a common or on the edge of the cliff, sometimes close at hand, reading his breviary in a narrow valley they were just about to pass through. They always turned another way to avoid passing him. Spring had come, inflaming their hearts with fresh desires, and urging them to seek each other's embraces in any secluded spot to which their rides might lead them. But the leaves were only budding, the grass was still damp from the rains of winter, and they could not, as in the height of summer, hide themselves amidst the undergrowth of the woods. Lately they had generally sheltered their caresses within a movable shepherd's hut, which had been left since autumn on the very top of the Vaucotte Hill. It stood all alone on the edge of the precipitous descent to the valley, five hundred yards above the cliff. There they felt quite secure, for they overlooked the whole of the surrounding country, and they fastened their horses to the shafts to wait until their masters were satiated with love. One evening, as they were leaving the hut, they saw the Abbe Tolbiac sitting on the hillside, nearly hidden by the rushes. "'We must leave our horses in that ravine another time,' said Julien, "'in case they should tell our whereabouts.' And thenceforth they always tied the horses up in a kind of recess in the valley, which was hidden by bushes. Another evening they were both returning to La Vriette, where the Comte was expecting Julien to dinner when they met the curé coming out of the chateau. He bowed without looking them in the face, and stood on one side to let them pass. For the moment his visit made them uneasy, but their anxiety was soon dispelled. Jeanne was sitting by the fire reading one windy afternoon at the beginning of May, when she suddenly saw the Comte de Fourville running towards the chateau at such a rate as to make her fear he was the bearer of bad news. She hastened downstairs to meet him, and when she saw him close, she thought he must have gone mad. He had on his shooting jacket and a big fur cap that he generally only wore on his own grounds, and he was so pale that his red moustaches, which as a rule hardly showed against his ruddy face, looked the colour of flame. His eyes were haggard and stared vacantly or rolled from side to side. "'My wife is here, isn't she?' he gasped. No, answered Jeanne, too frightened to think of what she was saying. I have not seen her all day. The comte dropped into a chair, as if his legs had no longer strength to support him, and, taking off his cap, he mechanically passed his handkerchief several times across his forehead. Then he started to his feet, and went towards Jeanne with outstretched hands, and mouth open to speak and tell her of his terrible grief. But suddenly he stopped short, and fixing his eyes on her, murmured, as if he were delirious, "'But it is your husband, you also!' And breaking off abruptly, he rushed out towards the sea. Jeanne ran after him, calling him and imploring him to stop. "'He knows all,' she thought in terror. "'What will he do? Oh, pray heaven he may not find them!' 
He did not listen to her, and evidently knowing whither to direct his steps, ran straight on without any hesitation as to the path he should take. Already he had leapt across the ditch, and was rapidly striding across the reeds towards the cliff. Finding she could not catch him up, Jeanne stood on the slope beyond the wood and watched him as long as he was in sight. Then, when she could see him no longer, she went indoors again, tortured with fear and anxiety. When he reached the edge of the cliff, the comte turned to the right and again began to run. The sea was very rough, and one after the other, the heavy clouds came up and poured their contents on the land. A whistling, moaning wind swept over the grass, laying low the young barley, and carrying the great white seagulls inland like sprays of foam. The rain, which came in gusts, beat in the comte's face and drenched his cheeks and moustaches and the tumult of the elements seemed to fill his heart as well as his ears. There, straight before him in the distance, lay the Vaucotte Valley, and between it and him stood a solitary shepherd's hut with two horses tied to the shafts. What fear could there be of anyone seeing them on such a day as this? As soon as he caught sight of the animals, the Comte threw himself flat on the ground and dragged himself along on his hands and knees, his hairy cap and mud-stained clothes making him look like some monstrous animal. He crawled to the lonely hut, and, in case its occupants should see him through the cracks in the planks, he hid himself beneath it. The horses had seen him and were pawing the ground. He slowly cut the reins by which they were fastened with a knife that he held open in his hand, and as a fresh gust of wind swept by, the two animals cantered off, their backs stung by the hail which lashed against the sloping roof of the shepherd's cot and made the frail abode tremble on its wheels. Then the comte rose to his knees, put his eye to the slit at the bottom of the door, and remained perfectly motionless while he watched and waited. Some time passed thus, and then he suddenly leapt to his feet, covered with mire from head to foot. Furiously he fastened the bolt which secured the shelter on the outside, and seizing the shafts, he shook the hut as if he would have broken it to atoms. After a moment he began to drag it along, exerting the strength of a bull, and bending nearly double in his tremendous effort, and it was towards the almost perpendicular slope to the valley that he hurried the cottage and its human occupants, who were desperately shouting and trying to burst open the door in their ignorance of what had happened. At the extreme edge of the slope, the comte let go of the hut, and it at once began to run down towards the valley. At first it moved but slowly, but its speed increasing as it went, it moved quicker and quicker, until soon it was rushing down the hill at a tremendous rate. Its shafts bumped along the ground, and it leaped over and dashed against the obstacles in its path, as if it had been endowed with life. It bounded over the head of an old beggar who was crouching in a ditch, and as it passed, the man heard frightful cries issuing from within it. All at once one of the wheels was torn off, and the hut turned over on its side. That, however, did not stop it, and now it rolled over and over like a ball, or like some house uprooted from its foundations and hurled from the summit of a mountain. It rolled on and on until it reached the edge of the last ravine. There it took a final leap, and after describing a curve, fell to the earth and smashed like an eggshell. Directly it had dashed upon the rocks at the bottom of the valley, 
the old beggar who had seen it falling began to make his way down through the brambles. He did not go straight to the shattered hut, but, like the cautious rustic that he was, went to announce the accident at the nearest farmhouse. The farm people ran to the spot the beggar pointed out, and beneath the fragments of the hut found two bruised and mangled corpses. The man's forehead was split open, and his face crushed. The woman's jaw was almost separated from her head, and their broken limbs were as soft as if there had not been a bone beneath the flesh. Still the farmers could recognize them, and they began to make all sorts of conjectures as to the cause of the accident. "'What could they have been doing in the cabin?' said a woman. The old beggar replied that apparently they had taken refuge from the weather, and that the high wind had overturned the hut and blown it down the precipice. He added that he himself was going to take shelter in it, when he saw the horses fastened to the shafts, and concluded that the place was already occupied. "'If it hadn't been for that, I should have been where they are now,' he said with an air of self-congratulation. "'Perhaps it would have been all the better if you had been,' said someone." "'Why would it have been better?' exclaimed the beggar in a great rage. "'Cause I'm poor and they're rich. Look at them now,' he said, pointing to the two corpses with his hooked stick, as he stood trembling and ragged, with the water dripping from him and his battered hat, his matted beard, his long unkempt hair, making him look terribly dirty and miserable. "'We're all equal when we're dead.' The group had grown bigger, and the peasants stood round with a frightened, cowardly look on their faces. After a discussion as to what they had better do, it was finally decided to carry the bodies back to their homes, in the hope of getting a reward. Two carts were got ready, and then a fresh difficulty arose. Some thought it would be quite enough to place straw at the bottom of the carts, and others thought it would look better to put mattresses. "'But the mattresses would be soaked with blood,' cried the woman, who had spoken before. "'They'd have to be washed with eau de javel.' "'The chateau people'll pay for that,' said a jolly-faced farmer. "'They can't expect to get things for nothing.' That decided the matter, and the two carts set off, one to the right, the other to the left, jolting and shaking the remains of these two beings, who had so often been clasped in each other's arms, but who would never meet again. When the Comte had seen the hut set off on its terrible journey, he had fled away through the rain and the wind and had run on and on across the country like a madman. He ran for several hours, heedless of which way his steps were taking him, and at nightfall he found himself at his own chateau. The servants were anxiously awaiting his return, and hastened to tell him that the two horses had just returned riderless, for Julien's had followed the other one. Monsieur de Fourville staggered back. "'Some accident must have happened to my wife and the vicomte,' he said in broken tones. Let everyone go and look for them. He started off again himself, as though he were going to seek them, but as soon as he was out of sight, he hid behind a bush and watched the road along which the woman he still loved so dearly would be brought, dead or dying, or perhaps maimed and disfigured for life. In a little while a cart passed by, bearing a strange load. It drew up before the chateau gates, then passed through them. Yes, he knew it was she but the dread of hearing the horrible truth forced him to stay in his hiding-place, and he crouched down like a hare, trembling at the faintest rustle. He waited for an hour, perhaps two, and yet the cart did not come back again. 
he was persuaded that his wife was dying, and the thought of seeing her, of meeting her eyes, was such a torture to him, that seized with a sudden fear of being discovered and compelled to witness her death, he again set off running, and did not stop till he was hidden in the midst of a wood. Then he thought that perhaps she needed help, and that there was no one to take care of her as he could, and he sped back in mad haste. As he was going into the house, he met his gardener. Well, he cried excitedly. The man dared not answer the truth. Is she dead? almost yelled Monsieur de Fourville. Yes, Monsieur le Comte, stammered the servant. The Comte experienced an intense relief at the answer. All his agitation left him, and he went quietly and firmly up the steps. In the meantime, the other cart had arrived at Les Peuples. Jeanne saw it in the distance, and, guessing that a corpse lay upon the mattress, understood at once what had happened. The shock was so great that she fell to the ground unconscious. When she came to herself again, she found her father supporting her head and bathing her forehead with vinegar. "'Do you know?' he asked hesitatingly. "'Yes, father,' she whispered, trying to rise.' but she was in such pain that she was forced to sink back again. That evening she gave birth to a dead child, a girl. She did not see or hear anything of Julien's funeral, for she was delirious when he was buried. In a few days she was conscious of Aunt Lisson's presence in her room, and in the midst of the feverish nightmares by which she was haunted, she strove to recall when and under what circumstances the old maid had last left Le Peuple but even in her lucid moments she could not remember, and she could only feel sure she had seen her since the Baroness's death. End of chapter 10